It's Thursday, May 12th, and this is People Every Day. Hello, everyone. This is Nigel Smith filling in for Janine Rubenstein, who is away for a very special reason. It's her birthday. So please join me in sending her some good vibes on her special day. It's a beautiful day outside, and there's plenty to talk about. So let's get into the stories of the day. We begin with some news that broke earlier today regarding a story we covered last week on the show. And just to give a warning, the story includes mention of a death by suicide. Ashley Judd has confirmed the details surrounding her mother's death. The singer and actress told Diane Sawyer in an emotional interview that aired this morning on Good Morning America that Naomi Judd used a weapon when she died by suicide on April 30th. She said, because we do not want to be part of the gossip economy, I will share with you that she used a weapon. My mother used a firearm, said Ashley. So that's the piece of information we are very uncomfortable sharing. But understand that we're in a position that if we don't say it, someone else is going to. Judd continued, when we're talking about mental illness, it's very important to be clear and to make the distinction between our loved ones and the disease. It's very real. It lies. It's savage. Our hearts go out to Ashley and her family during this very difficult time. More devastating news. BBC journalist and podcast host Deborah James, who is terminally ill, has recorded the final episode of her show just days after sharing that she had entered hospice. Ahead of the episode, dubbed Deborah James's Last Dance, producer Mike Holt explained that James recorded the episode from her parents' garden in a sun chair. I decided that I want to be at my parents' because as much as I love London, I can't even get up the steps to pee. It's kind of not practical. My parents live in a bungalow so I can see greenery and my whole family can come here. It's kind of where I always wanted to die, James added. I kind of always had that in my mind. In her message, James said that she's focused on taking it a day at a time, step by step, and being grateful for another sunrise. My whole family are around me, and we will dance through this together, sunbathing and laughing. I'll cry at every possible moment. The beloved BBC journalist started her podcast, You, Me, and the Big C, after being diagnosed with incurable bowel cancer in 2016. The show has chronicled her struggles with the disease over the past six years. Our thoughts are with her and her family as they go through this difficult time. Moving on to last night's drama-packed Real Housewives of Beverly Hills premiere, in the emotionally charged episode, star Dorit Kemsley opened up about the traumatic break-in she and her family experienced. In October, three male intruders invaded Kemsley's home in Encino, California, while her two children were asleep. Dorit, 45, was held at gunpoint and robbed of nearly one million in valuables. Though her husband, Paul P.K. Kemsley, was in London at the time, he returned home shortly after hearing the horrific news. After the premiere, Kemsley recounted the terrifying experience in an interview with Andy Cohen on Watch What Happens Live. Listen, first and foremost, I'm so grateful that myself and my family are safe. Yeah. Um, Obviously, it's a particularly difficult time because I'm reliving it and there's a lot that's resurfacing. But, um, you know, I know I'll get through it. I know I will. All of a sudden, I hear the door open. I thought it was my kids, and then I don't see them, she recalled. So I get out of bed, and that's when I saw not a little person, but a big person. One of the men told Dorit to lead them to where the valuables were in her home. 
All I could think in my head was, I have to do everything to save these kids, she told the cameras through her tears. Even though they stole so many irreplaceable items, Dorit asked the intruders to leave behind her cell phone. The men agreed and left the mobile device by the front gate, and she contacted the police. Dorit credited her calm demeanor as the key to her survival and noted that things could have easily gotten much, much worse. I'm grateful that I was able to be level-headed because I look back and I think, my God, it could have gone a hundred different ways. A terrifying story, especially knowing her kids were in the other room. We are thankful that everyone is safe and no one was harmed. Now, for some lighter news, the summer movie season is in full swing, and today we're breaking down one of the most anticipated sequels of the year, Top Gun Maverick. Captain Pete Maverick Mitchell. Let me be perfectly blunt. You are not my first choice. You are here at the request of Admiral Kazansky, AKA Iceman. He seems to think that you have something left to offer the Navy. What that is, I can't imagine. With all due respect, sir, I'm not a teacher. Just want to manage expectations. That was from the new movie Top Gun Maverick, which is finally flying into theaters later this month after a lot of COVID delays. I'm lucky enough to have caught an early screening, and I'm psyched to report that this sequel to Tom Cruise's 80s classic is the perfect summer ride and was well worth the wait. So I'm so glad to have someone here to discuss everything you all need to know before seeing this rush of a blockbuster. Joining me now is People's Jeremy Parsons. Hey, Jeremy. Hey, Nigel. Thanks for having me. Thanks for coming on to talk about this awesome film. I loved it, and I know you loved it, too. So share what you thought about it. Biggest takeaway. I'm not joking when I tell you I teared up several times. I got chills. I was overwhelmed with them. And I can't. I don't know if it was the nostalgia. I don't know if it was the score, which was incredible. The music was great and the textures and all of that. Or if it was that Tom Cruise is just eternally ageless, and I know I will never even come close to aging that well. I don't know which one it was, but I cried. I cried. Well, since you talk about crying, let's get into the Val Kilmer of it all, because he reunites with Val Kilmer for this movie, and Val Kilmer's obviously gone through a lot of health struggles over the past few years, and it meant the world to see him on this big, big film again, reunited with Tom Cruise. What did that scene mean to you? Yeah, it was really powerful. Tom Cruise had talked leading up to this. He had expressed that he pretty much would only do the movie if Val Kilmer was on board as well. In spite of everything that Val's going through, I really, really wanted to know, how are they going to work this out in a way that seems natural, in a way that's fitting? And without giving spoilers away, I think they did a masterful job at it. I thought he was represented so well. And back to the emotion of it all. That was one of those scenes where it's almost like knowing the reality of what Val Kilmer, the real person, is going through. And then also sort of this grand reflection on one of the most iconic roles and relationships on screen, him and Tom Cruise. I thought it had the emotional impact that it, that it needed for the film. Well, to get into onto the emotional wavelength of this amazing movie, you kind of have to know where the first film left off. So can you take us back? Well, one of the biggest things that we, are, that we need to know going in is that, spoiler alert, <laughs> Goose died in the first film. It's pretty much the entire, the foundation of this movie is the reality of Tom Cruise's character Maverick's relationship with Goose, the loss of Goose, and how that's affected him over now 30 years. And as we are entering into this film, Goose's son, Rooster, 
who's played by Miles Teller, played amazingly by him. He suddenly falls under Maverick's direction as a leader. And that piece of the first movie is pivotal and critical. The whole second movie is built on that relationship. If you haven't seen the first film or if you haven't seen it in a while, it did come out in the 80s. Definitely check it out. You have some time before seeing Top Gun Maverick. We also have a new song from Lady Gaga, Hold My Hand, on the film's soundtrack. It's got those 80s synths and a great bellowing sound to it. Tom Cruise, of course, does his own stunts in the movie, and that was so fascinating and exciting to watch him in the cockpit for so many of these flight sequences. What did you feel seeing him take off like that? I think they've done a great job letting us know through the you know the press releases and everything else that Tom Cruise got a lot of that leading cast to do actual G-force training, actual flight training, because they wanted a lot of those shots in the cockpit. They wanted them to actually be in the cockpit feeling the feels of those G's. Amazing. While we do see some familiar faces that we mentioned, we would be remiss not to point out that some of the women from the original film, namely Meg Ryan and Kelly McGillis, who played his love interest in the first film, did not return. Can you tell us why that is? Well, Meg Ryan hasn't really spoken about it. Kelly McGillis did speak a little bit in the years leading up to this, saying that she wasn't a part of it. The filmmaker also talked about wanting to sort of pull apart some more or, or tease out some other storylines. So we have Jennifer Connelly taking a center role here as Penny. And she's great. She's fantastic. And the, and the rapport and the chemistry between her and Tom Cruise, you can tell they hit it off right away. It's very believable. And not only believable, it soars. It's, it's incredible. I love that they were able to tease out a character. The filmmaker also said that he really wanted to focus on building some of the relationships of those new characters and really, really focusing on what was going on between Tom Cruise's character and Miles Teller's character as Goose's son. That really took center stage. I'm so excited for fans to check it out. Be sure to check out People's Special Edition issue that's all about the making of Top Gun Maverick with interviews from the cast and crew on stands now. Woo! So, Jeremy, thank you so much for stopping by. Thanks, Nigel. A new documentary is unearthing some fascinating details about film legend Marilyn Monroe's final days. We break down all the information revealed in the new Netflix doc, including some new revelations about her troubled relationships next. But first, Kendrick Lamar has a big new release this weekend, and a new family photo confirms he's putting out more than just award-winning albums. We take a look at his single, Video, and take a peek at a new addition to his family after this. We are back, and let's get into an exciting update about the return of rap legend Kendrick Lamar. He's a father of two. The Pulitzer Prize-winning artist's long-anticipated fifth album is due out tomorrow, but new music isn't the only thing Lamar is sharing with the world. Yesterday, the 14-time Grammy winner unveiled the cover photo for Mr. Morale and the Big Steppers on his Instagram. The photo contains 34-year-old Lamar holding his daughter, who he and fiancé Whitney Alford welcomed in 2019. Alford is also seen sitting on a nearby bed holding an infant, confirming that they've welcomed a second child into the family. 
Lamar has managed to keep his personal life pretty private, but in a 2014 New York Times profile, the musician opened up about Alford, saying she's been here since day one. Ahead of his album release tomorrow, Lamar dropped a new single, The Heart Part 5, on Sunday, along with a mesmerizing new video. I come from a generation of pain will murder his minor. Rebellious and more jealous, a trip you for designer. Belt buckles The five-minute video, which is captured in a single take, shows Lamar rapping about a variety of subjects while his face morphs into a number of famous people using deepfake technology. The transformations include O.J. Simpson, Will Smith, Jesse Smollett, Kobe Bryant, Kanye West, and Nipsey Hussle. If you haven't seen it, I highly recommend checking it out on YouTube. Like all of Lamar's work, it is mind-blowing. We want to offer our full congratulations to Lamar on both his new album and the new addition to the family. Hollywood icon Marilyn Monroe took the world by storm with her beauty, charisma, and star quality. Everyone wanted to meet her or be her. Sadly, as we all know, her life came to a tragic end on a summer night in 1962. That moment left those who loved her dearly unsettled about what really happened. Netflix is now diving into the case behind her death in the new documentary, The Mystery of Marilyn Monroe, The Unheard Tapes, which pulls back the curtain on what happened to her during her final days and juicy details about her rumored love interests. In this week's issue on Newsstands Friday, we highlight this story. And here with me now is the Marilyn Monroe expert, People's Casey Baker. Hi, Casey. Welcome to the show. Hi, thank you for having me. Well, the audio tapes belong to a renowned journalist named Anthony Summers, who's kept them for 40 years after his investigation of Marilyn Monroe's death. He's also written books on Richard Nixon, J. Edgar Hoover, and interviewed 650 people for his book, Goddess, The Secret Lives of Marilyn Monroe, first published in 1985. So Casey, when you first heard that there was this unheard audio of some of Monroe's closest confidants, what was your reaction? And do we know why Summers decided to make them public? I was thrilled when I heard about this Netflix documentary. And when I watched it, I pretty much fell off the couch because some of the people he interviews are extraordinary and they're saying things that I couldn't believe they were saying. We talked to Anthony Summers, my colleague Liz McNeil and I, about why he made the tapes public. He made them public because director Emma Cooper came to him and said, we're thinking of doing this documentary. What do you think? And he said, that sounds great. I will give you access to all 650 tapes. So she and her assistant, they listened to every single tape, which I wish we could all do. And then she presented this to Netflix and then they they made it public. That is quite the undertaking to listen to all those tapes, but wow, I, I, I'm, I'm pretty jealous. There were notable key players who were very close to Monroe, then President John F. Kennedy and his brother, Robert Kennedy. And before her death, her phone calls to the White House went unreturned. Here's a clip where she is described as raising a stink about her relationship with them. She'd been hot and heavy for, for Bob. Yes, at first. And then uh, he, she'd gotten a cold shoulder or somehow or other it had turned. Now the details of that, I don't know. Right. But somehow or other she had come to the point where she felt like she was just being used. 
Marilyn's day grew more fraught when Bobby Kennedy, the attorney general at the time, came to her house for the first time in the named for the first time in the updated version of Goddess. She was raising a stink, Wilson said. She was calling John in the White House and complaining. She felt like she was being used. What else do these tapes reveal about the relationship and the days leading up to her death? Well, according to Summers, Marilyn had relationships with both President Kennedy and his brother, Robert F. Kennedy, There's so much complexity to the relationship because one thing we learn in the documentary is that because Robert F. Kennedy was investigating Teamsters union leader Jimmy Hoffa, Jimmy Hoffa asked various people to bug Marilyn's house. And so you can hear in the audio tapes JFK and Marilyn in a secret romantic tryst. They have no idea they're being taped, but a guy who listened to the tapes tells everybody what he heard. There are also arguments heard between Bobby and Marilyn, allegedly, especially on the last day of her life. A friend of hers named Arthur James says she was ordered, quote, never to call them again. And apparently she got so upset that she was told not to call the White House and not to be in touch with Bobby Kennedy anymore. What we also learned in the tapes is that she allegedly became a security threat. And that's because it's believed that she spoke to the brothers about some high level political happenings and Some people high up in the government may have believed that that was dangerous to national security. These tapes are a dug up treasure for sure, but do they erase the mystery behind her sudden death or have they created more questions, do you think? So many people want to know what happened to Marilyn in the final hours of her life. And there are so many conspiracy theories about what happened. Was she murdered? Did she accidentally overdose? Did she do it on purpose? Here's the bottom line. We'll never know. But in Summer's book, Goddess, and in the documentary, he says that he found evidence of a cover-up about what time she died, potentially, and they covered up her death to hide any sign that Bobby Kennedy may have visited her in her final hours on August 4th, 1962. According to Summers, he went to her house that day to break up with her. And in a recording, you can hear Bobby saying, where is it? Where the F is it? Referring to what Summers believes was a diary that Marilyn was keeping. Well, we could talk about this for hours. There's so many mysteries surrounding her death that have still been unanswered, even though, you know, we have all these tapes and this documentary has been released and there's countless books to to call from surrounding this whole controversy. But thank you so much, Casey, for stopping by and trying to unpack this mystery for us. I'm sure it's a saga that will continue on. We're leaving you today with a heartwarming story from the place where dreams really do come true, Broadway. 
Bella Thompson, an eight-year-old girl known to her five million TikTok followers as Bella Brave, received a standing ovation at the David Foster Gala on Saturday night, all thanks to Broadway star Jessica Vosk. Bella, who is experiencing bowel failure and is currently on the list for a bowel transplant, and her mother were special guests at David Foster's A Night on Broadway Gala in Toronto. The event raised funds for Canadian families with children in need of life-saving organ transplants. I was in the middle of singing Don't Rain in My Parade, and I just looked down into the audience and saw her dancing by herself in the aisle, living her best life. And I knew she had to come on stage and have a complete star moment, Vosk tells people. David Foster stopped the band and the audience went wild and she stole the show and she stole my heart too. Just hearing how excited Bella is to be on stage and perform is something to make you smile. What an amazing star-making moment, Bella. We're pulling for you and we can't wait for your Broadway debut. Thank you so much for joining us today on People Every Day and thank you for letting me step in today. Birthday girl Janine will be back tomorrow to close out the week with you all. Until then, have a great day. 